the drifts and shifts and lifts and troubles from a weary mind. God, is it just me or are these copyright expired intro songs getting crappy? This one is Where the Lazy Daisies Grow by Frank Crummett. If you ask me, it does not rock as hard as some of the other copyright-expired songs we've had. It doesn't thrash the way, for example, Does Anybody Here Want to Try My Cabbage? Did or Hinky Dinky Parlay Vu? This one, it's just kind of, you know, it's amazing to me that a hundred years ago, you could have a record that was really just a honky with the ukulele, and there is no other way to describe this song. I'm sorry to use that word, but this is a honky with a ukulele. I am a white guy. You probably put two and two together there. I can't believe you could make that and people would be like, yes, I need to run out and buy that record. I need this shit in my life. How much is it? 40 cents? A week's wages? Sure. I'm going to put that on, pour myself a phosphate, and crank the Victrola till my wrist is sore because I have to have where the lazy daisies grow in my life before I die of diphtheria, which, statistically, is probably in about a week or two. Hello! Welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast. This is the audio version of my Substack, which is called I Might Be Wrong. You can find it, of course, at imightberwrong.geocities.askjeeves. Uh, check me out on Friendster. Check me out on MySpace. We've got a promo coming up where next month, every physical AOL CD that is mailed out will have a sample of I Might Be Wrong on it. So look for that in the physical mail. Also, of course, I might be wrong.substack.com where you can find this episode and many, many other articles. Okay, so today's episode is called Why Are We So Hooked on Narratives? I wanted to write this one because <laughs> if you read my Substack, I talk about narratives all the time. Probably two-thirds of my columns mention narratives, that's because it has become very clear to me that this is the way human beings take in information. It's less sort of an antiseptic processing of facts and data. It's narratives. We understand stories. This is just how it works. This is how it works in the news world, especially if you are dealing with a not very ethical news source. They're just going to give you narratives that you like. So I've known for a while that narratives are the thing and I recently, not to sound fancy, but I read a book. I read a book, and the book really clicked with me because I thought, this is why. This is why narratives work so well for us. So I wanted to write about it. The title is, Why Are We So Hooked on Narratives? Subtitle, It Might Be Our Stupid Brain's Fault. So I sometimes think that news is a little bit like food. So The Economist and The Atlantic, those are kale. Cable news, that's McDonald's. The New York Times and The Washington Post, those are Michelin star restaurants run by eccentric chefs who are possibly going insane. So sometimes their output is really great. And then other times you find a human finger in your risotto and think, what the fuck is going on back there? Twitter and Facebook, those would be garbage bags full of Sour Patch Kids and whipped cream. And that's maybe a generous description of their content. I would be lying if I said that I exclusively consume a healthy, balanced media diet. I don't. I spend plenty of time <laughs> scooping 
Big heaping handfuls from that delicious trash bag of sugary crap. Reading thoughtful pieces from quality sources, that's work. I have to make myself do it. I will sometimes tell myself, if you read this article about the global cobalt shortage, then, after that, you can reward yourself with the article that you want to read, which is, of course, 15 former child stars who work shitty jobs now, parentheses, number seven is also fat. Anyway, because I accidentally ended up with a career in media, if you call this a career, I think a lot about what people want to read and what people want to hear. The secret recipe, to be honest, is pretty simple. People want to hear stories that fit their worldview. Narratives. Narratives are the coin of the realm. There are exceptions, of course. One of the great things about Substack is that some truly outstanding newsletters are making independence their brand. I'm talking about slow boring. I'm talking about no opinion. I'm talking about single-minded. Anyway, a few people are stubbornly independent in the best possible way, but the big money really isn't in telling people stuff that is new or that they might not want to hear. The big money is in telling people stories that confirm what they think they already know. I recently came across a book that made me think about why narratives are so central to how we understand the world. The book is called A Thousand Brains, A New Theory of Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. Jeff with a J. Gotta love those Jeff with the J's. Probably the strongest bias of this podcast is that we are very pro-Jeff with a J here. We don't do this G shit because it makes a J sound. We got a letter that does exactly that. It's a J. Anyway, the book is A Thousand Brains, A New Theory of Intelligence. It's a very good book. Honestly, I did not have fun reading it. It was work. It might be fun for other people, but for me it was work. It didn't give me the dopamine hit that I would have gotten from, for example, an article about how Game of Thrones went from being an all-time great show to an all-time gigantic pile of shit, which is a thing that I believe, and I would have loved to have that told back to me for the millionth time, which is, of course, exactly the type of phenomenon that Hawkins' book might help explain. Now, it would be a disservice to Hawkins' argument to try to summarize it in a few paragraphs. So, let's get started on that. Hawkins believes that we have an old brain and a new brain. The old brain, as he calls it, is basically everything that's not the neocortex. So, that would be the long thing, the lumpy bit, the part that looks like a big walnut, and the cauliflower-looking thing. Hawkins uses different terms in the book. The old brain governs basic survival, which basically means that when we encounter something, the old brain sends a signal that tells us whether to eat the thing or fuck the thing. I think of the old brain as, imagine a big red lever on a wall with two positions. One position is eat, one position is fuck. And you can move it to eat, you can move it to fuck. Those are basically your two options. That is more or less how I see the old brain. Again, Hawkins is a little more nuanced. Now let's get to the new brain. The new brain, the neocortex and fancy college boy speak, makes up about 70% of the human brain, give or take. It controls what we might call higher function, i.e. more elaborate ways of deciding what to eat and what to fuck. An interesting thing about the neocortex is that it's more homogenous than you might think. One part 
is similar to another part, which is similar to the part after that. In that way, it's a lot like the Wes Anderson catalog. Sample any bit of it, you're probably going to find the same thing. Specifically, in Wes Anderson's case, a symmetrically framed scene featuring a Wilson brother using old-timey technology and having existential angst about his dad. And I do generally like Wes Anderson, but he is still burnt. I have burned thee, Wes Anderson. Now, because all parts of the neocortex seem to be similarly built, Hawkins and his team at the Numenta Institute for Brain Shit, Numenta for short, set out to find an elemental explanation for what that tissue does. The theory they came up with is that the neocortex creates what they call reference frames, basically models for how the world works. So, for example, if I am about to encounter a basketball, my brain has a model for how a basketball looks, how it feels, how it behaves. My brain quickly makes a series of predictions based on that model. And assuming those predictions prove correct when I encounter the ball, my brain sends appropriate instructions to my body. Specifically, pass it, Whitey, you can't shoot for shit. Now, if my brain's predictions are not met, if, for example, I get the basketball and it has the texture of jello or the density of a neutron star, then suddenly it is DEFCON 4 in my body. Something unexpected has happened. That represents possible danger and demands my attention. Hawkins calls this general theory of function the thousand brains theory, I assume after the cognitive scientist Archibald Thousand Brains. My God, that is a stupid joke. I'm leaving it in. <laughs> Hawkins thinks <laughs> that this theorized method of interaction, which basically goes knowledge, then prediction, then information, then reaction. Hawkins believes this applies to complex ideas as much as it does to basic objects. So just as I have a mental model of how I might interact with the basketball, I can also have a mental model of how I'm likely to interact with, for example, a networking event, which in my case is that I am going to spend a week telling myself, you have to do this. This is your job. You have to do this. And then I'm going to go and bail after 20 minutes and decide, yeah, I'll just be poor. Problem solved. I will just be poor. At any rate, anything that can be imagined can also be modeled. I can have a model in my brain for concepts like democracy or justice or mathematics. Hawkins believes that to be highly intelligent is to have a highly accurate model of how the world works. Of course, I have no idea if Hawkins' theory is correct. My brain emphatically does not have a model for assessing theories of cognition. That space has been given away to commercial jingles from the 80s and famous breasts that I have seen in movies. But from my totally ignorant perspective, Hawkins' theory makes sense. It seems intuitive to me that intelligence might be a way for organisms to understand their surroundings and that higher intelligence could represent a more sophisticated understanding of those surroundings. After all, a synonym for dumb is simple. A simple cognitive model might be berries are tasty. A better model would be berries are tasty except for nightshade. And a genius model would be berries are tasty 
except for Nightshade, and if you pretend that some berries are magic, people will overpay for them based on virtually no evidence. And yes, I am talking about acai berries. Come at me, acai berry lobby. Now, if Hawkins is right, and for shits and giggles, let's assume that he is, then I think that his theory might tell us why narratives are so powerful in shaping how we see the world. The first relevant point would be that narratives really mimic the way that human beings take in information. We get information through experience, not through abstraction. Right now, we are in a pandemic in which mountains of statistical evidence have been published showing that vaccines work. But to a lot of people, that data is less persuasive than the story of Nicki Minaj's cousin's big balls. Say what you will about the quality of the information, Minaj's method of conveyance, it is more intuitive. It is a story. There is no precedent in primitive society for internalizing abstract concepts that are represented by data, but there is a precedent for thinking, whoa, look at that dude's nuts. If that happened in primitive society, if you saw a member of your tribe's nads swell to the size of grapefruits, or if you even heard about it, you would avoid whatever thing you thought caused that swelling. The tail of the jumbo testes would have a huge impact on your mental model of how the world works. So first, stories affect how our model is built. And then once the model is built, we should recognize that there's not really much reason, much incentive to adjust it unless you have a really concrete incentive. And if we're talking about politics, political engagement isn't typically a highly efficient method of achieving personal goals. In terms of direct personal benefit, a crude model of the political world, that's probably going to work about as well as an elaborate one. Plus, since experiences shape our models of the world, whatever model a person develops, it's probably going to be self-serving anyway. So there's another reason why there might not be a huge incentive to revisit your model and adjust it, which is to say, once you've got a model of how the political world works, you're probably not going to spend a ton of time and effort making that model better. A person's model of the political world, it's almost never like an athlete's body in that you have to constantly keep it up, constantly maintain. It's really more like an athlete's body after they retire, which is to say, let that thing go to shit because it does not matter anymore. So since there is only rarely any real incentive to improve your political model of the world, there is also no incentive to seek out better information. In fact, if you think about it, there's really a clear disincentive because new information could be threatening. And I'm going to pause here and say that on the written version of this column, which you can find at imightberwrong.substack.com, somebody in the comment section, a lady named Marie Kennedy, posted a comic strip that I think illustrated this concept really well. I had never seen it before, but she posted it and I read it and I thought, wow, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So again, it's in the comment section. Lady's name is Marie Kennedy. Seems like a pretty good supplement to what I'm talking about. Back to me now. There is a disincentive 
to find new information because that could be threatening, which our bodies do not like. Returning to the basketball example, if someone threw me a basketball and I caught it and I found it to be as dense as a neutron star, that would be a surprising and unexplained change in my environment. That is pretty much the definition of a cause for alarm in the primal world. Something has changed. This is not good. I'm alarmed. It's like if Malala Yousafzai got really into crypto and then started popping up in sketchy looking YouTube ads, pushing Malala coin, that would surprise me. That would throw me off a bit. It would create cognitive dissonance that would cause me stress. I would then have to either live with that stress or go through the hassle of tearing down my old mental model and creating a new mental model of the world that can accommodate Malala Yousafzai in a flat-billed supreme hat with the sticker still on the bill, showing off her Lamborghini and telling me that I, quote, got to get sprung on this coin, kid. I would really be better off without that data. I do not need that kind of mental turmoil in my life. We have an incentive to avoid surprises and cognitive dissonance. Therefore, the obvious incentive is for me to try to only encounter information that already fits the mental model that I have. This is a lot more possible today than it was, say, 20 or 40 years ago. The splintering of media makes it easy for me to only encounter narratives that match what I already believe. Twitter and Facebook's algorithms basically guarantee that this will happen. Now, back in the day, finding bespoke news to fit my worldview, that was tough. If I didn't like what Walter Cronkite was saying, I could flip over to NBC and have David Brinkley tell me pretty much exactly the same shit. But those were pretty much my two options. Also, Cronkite and Brinkley might have had some qualms about aggressively cultivating their coverage to reflect their audience's beliefs. By contrast, today, cultivating your coverage to reflect your audience's beliefs, that pretty much is the business model. People in media, if you think about it, they, we, I don't know if I count, they have every incentive to simplify things. The less nuance they provide, the less likely they are to disrupt their viewers' models of the world. Also, if mental models get more sophisticated with intelligence, then by presenting a highly complex, nuanced version of reality, by definition, that's going to limit your audience. You want to go for that big meaty part of the bell curve. Much better to omit the bits of information that your audience doesn't like and then double down on the bits of information that they do. The goal is always to confirm and never to confront your audience's beliefs. Every story should be a parable, a morality tale, in which you find a fresh and exciting way to tell your audience, you are right. You are right and you are smart and everything you believe is correct. The result of this is news that is essentially comfort food. It is safe, it is reassuring, it flatters our intelligence, and it never forces us to do the work of tearing down our mental model and building a new one. Because, to get back to where I started, obtaining the information to build a good model is hard. It sucks, and it is not fun. Personally, I don't want to read Jason Furman, who is a very good economist. Look him up on Twitter. I don't want to read him or the Financial Times 
to think about whether I've been too dovish on inflation and how new information should inform my opinion going forward. I don't want to do that. I want to watch that compilation of Orson Welles' wine commercial outtakes for the millionth fucking time, which I, of course, have posted on the written version of this episode. I highly recommend that you watch late period Orson Welles, clearly drunk, stumble his way through a wine commercial. Let me drop a quick bit of that audio in here. Here's Orson Welles. Action, please. Ah, the French. God, that's good. One more time. Ah, the French. At least as good as Citizen Kane. At any rate, the point is, the video is fun, and I want to watch it because it confirms a thing that I already believe, which is that many people we hail as geniuses are actually just weirdos. It is a fun, world-affirming trifle. It's junk food. And junk food is fine in small amounts, but let's all acknowledge that our entire news diet should probably not be junk food. We should probably be adults and consume something that has at least a little bit of substance sometimes. And that's the episode. Can we hear Orson Welles one more time? Ah, the French. That literally makes me laugh every single time I watch it, and I've watched it a hundred times. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I did say both honky and whitey in it. Uh, I apologize for that. More racial slurs than I was going for. Uh, I'm in a real tough spot because I don't think racial slurs, even if it's, you know, my own group, quote-unquote, probably shouldn't use them, but honky's a real funny comedy word. Honky's a funny word. Oh, I'll think about the ethics of that some other time. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this. This episode and many, many other articles are on my Substack, which is I might be wrong.substack.com. It is completely free at the moment. I will be back next week with another episode. So thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.